Paris Marks is a technology writer. They've written for Time Magazine, Wired, CBC News, Jacobin, and One Zero. They speak internationally on the future of transportation. They also host the award-winning podcast, Tech Won't Save Us, which offers a much-needed critical perspective on the history and future implications of big tech. Their book, Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation, was published by Verso Books in 2022. Our conversation mainly focuses on Road to Nowhere, why they wrote it in such an accessible way, the politics of communication in the context of a climate emergency, and what it says that we're largely programmed to assume that technology, even technology that's produced for a profit by private multinational corporations, will save us. Paris's book has a lot of answers, but doesn't answer all the questions. I kind of pushed them to speak to some of the most problematic issues around public engagement and political mobilization. One of the really useful things about their approach is that it's rooted in a sense that history is helpful if we look critically at the things we've been told are true about our car-centric infrastructure and compare it with what a rigorous look at history reveals. The history they offer is startling in the sense that it shows a number of branching paths where our infrastructure could have looked very different if it wasn't for powerful sites of capitalist production impinging on policymaking in profound ways. There have been moments where massive amounts of public money was spent making a world that doesn't work. We need to move in a radically different direction and maybe rethink work. There are nearly 1.5 billion vehicles on the planet. According to Marx, replacing them with more vehicles, this time around powered by batteries, is not a viable strategy. I asked them if we need to leverage the desire for disruptive change. What Marx says is that people are much more open to change than we give them credit for. We are incentivized to want to keep things as they are, despite the dire ecological consequences because the economic consequences of change are made so punitive. For this reason, in the face of the climate crisis, Paris points out that we have to push ourselves to understand the intertwined nature of many seemingly separate struggles over mobility, housing, health, community, and many others. So while the rate of vehicle collisions or pedestrian deaths, for example, might feel ordinary now, that doesn't mean it has to be met with passive acceptance. What if we let us radicalize it again, as it once did in our past? Here in Halifax, we saw that process happen. A local activist named Steve McKay organized a protest against political inaction, and it was successful in getting traffic calming put on Roby Street. The data shows that vehicular deaths disproportionately occur in poor neighborhoods, and that not enough is being done. If part of the problem is just acceptance, the answer might be refusal. Refusing to accept this absurd reality where, as Marx says in their book, an estimated 1.3 million people are killed globally every year in road traffic crashes, more than 3,500 people every single day. What would it mean to refuse that reality? I wanted to start with kind of a silly question um, to just quickly set it up. Most people know the talk show Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, um, hosted by car enthusiast and I think overrated comedian Jerry Seinfeld. 
You know, this thing ran for seven years and 11 seasons. It's been viewed on Crackle a hundred million times and many, many more times, I'm sure, on Netflix. Uh, not once did Seinfeld set out to pick up his guests in, a, in an electric vehicle, right? Um, but in the Jim Carrey episode, they talk about it. Uh, Carrey says, I'm driving a Tesla. I love the Tesla. And Seinfeld replies, I like burning stuff. <laughs> And Carrie quickly says, we love breathing what you're burning, baby. And then there's like this quick cutaway. And the moment I I think kind of gives the audience a comfortable way to shrug off a potential moment of tension over the very premise of the show, like driving, air pollution. And yet like that moment, that line, we love breathing what you're burning, provides the title for the episode. Um, Your book, Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation, is written in a really accessible way. Um, But there's something especially accessible, I think, about like comedy because of the way that it tends to let people off the hook. Um, You know, comedians often joke that they're giving a TED Talk whenever they veer into lecturing. Um, (laughs) So like when Seinfeld just casually says, I like burning stuff, like he's obviously being an idiot, but he's also sort of owning that he's an idiot, that he's like an indulgent elitist. So I just, you know, this is a way of kind of setting up a question around like communication, basically. Like, I think people just don't have maybe the time or the bandwidth in some ways to like engage. Do you think that communicators need to almost like operate from that position and get more crafty about advocating for what you're advocating, which is like systems level change? Um, And is there a way that we can like take the problem of reorganizing society seriously without taking ourselves too seriously? (laughs) Yeah, um, definitely. I, I think so. Right. And I've seen a few episodes of comedians in cars getting coffee like years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't say I was like a, a regular watcher or anything. And I think it's interesting as well that it seems like a number of these kind of successful comedians have a bit of an obsession with cars and like right. collecting cars and enjoying cars. Like, you know, you think not just Seinfeld, but like people like Leno, of course, um, you know, he has a, a massive car collection. Uh, they, they love this kind of stuff, right? Um, I, I think it's interesting, like when you think about, you know, communication as you talked about, right? And obviously we exist in kind of a world where the car has been dominant now for, you know, the better part of a century. Um, and as a result of that, the automotive companies have been very influential in shaping how we think about transportation, the narratives that we have about transportation, um, and kind of, you know, there's there's a long legacy of narratives that they set up many decades ago that are now just kind of accepted as the reality of how things are and just how we think about these issues, right? This notion that the car is associated with freedom um, or that like, you know, it's just kind of automatic that we should want cars. And this is something that, that, uh, you know, we should associate with transportation and how we get around. Um, and I think that there's obviously, you know, things need to adapt and 
change over time. But one of the things I do in the book is I go back to the early days of the automobile and how there was a lot of opposition to it in that moment and how groups that were opposed to it, you know, drew up propaganda and had kind of public demonstrations and all this kind of stuff to draw attention to the fact that cars were killing a lot of people. And this was quite a novel thing in the cities of, you know, the early 20th century. And so I think that there's something we can learn from that while also trying to adapt it to, you know, modern times and modern technology and modern communication patterns. Um, But to know that it's not that it's something that is completely novel and never been done before, but other people have opposed cars in the past and sometimes successfully so. Um, and we can probably learn from them as well. Like, I think it pays to do the work that you do, which is to kind of rewind and say, like, how did we get to this point? And could things have turned out differently? Like one of the things your book does is try to kind of correct, I think, the historical record on how gasoline vehicles became the standard way of getting around. Um And like a huge part of it is the central importance of public and rail transit. But for now, like I feel as though it makes sense to talk about electric vehicles um, as this thing that has become like metonymic of of transition um, and climate action. Like, you know, increasingly polls show that these things are wedded together in people's heads. You talk about how EVs actually could have beat out petroleum powered vehicles to begin with. But that initially, quote, customers could buy an internal combustion vehicle at a much lower price than an electric one. And even though the electric vehicle was quieter, offered a smoother drive and started more easily, it actually lost the race for like market saturation. Did you want to like expand it all on that history? I mean, it's in the book, but it, it's funny to me that it feels almost like an alternate history, even though it's true. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I can certainly expand on it. Um, and, and I should just say, you know, obviously, I go into a lot of history on the book. And that's, you know, building on the work of a lot of historians who I cite people like Peter Norton and David Kirsch, who have looked into these issues and who I cite, um, you know, in, in the book in, in going through that. But I would say if we go back to kind of the late um, 1800s, early 1900s, what we see is that there is this competition to see what is going to be the kind of automotive technology that becomes dominant. And of course, there's also, you know, a fight as to whether the automobile is going to become a dominant form of transportation anyway, but we can talk about that later. Um, Mm -hmm. And what we see there is that you know, obviously the electric car is one of the options that is there and that is kind of the early one and that one is gaining steam before kind of the other forms of transportation. And there's a while where it looks like that might be the one that actually kind of dominates and becomes kind of the model of what the automobile is going to be into the 20th century. There's obviously the internal combustion engine as well. Obviously, internal combustion engines at that time are much more rudimentary than what they are today. They're very dirty. They're very loud. Um, You know, obviously, they can consume a lot of fuel and things like that. Um, And there's also steam engine vehicles because, of course, steam power is very important in that moment, still is at that time. Um, And so that's another form of of automotive kind of uh, mobility that is competing against these other two forms in that moment. And 
so, you know, obviously electrification is happening in that period um, around that kind of turn of the century and, and is expanding through, you know, those kind of number of years. Um, and so there's a lot of interest in, you know, obviously we're connecting up homes and electrifying them and offices and all this kind of stuff. You know, people are getting, you know, lights and, and there are lights in the, in the streets and all these sorts of things. Um, and it just seems natural that the form of transportation would also be electrified, you know, would have a battery in it, would also be using this new kind of network that is being rolled out. Um, but part of the reason that the electric vehicle fails to, you know, cement its dominance, I guess, is that there, there are a number of interests that are not really aligned in having that happen. So a lot of the utilities are not on board with kind of pushing the electric vehicle and trying to subsidize it and encourage it to be adopted. Um, so you have the automakers on one side and the power utilities on another, and they're not kind of um, working together in order to try to achieve this. And I think that would have significantly helped had they done that. But the other piece of it is that there's a lot of different electric vehicles that are being made and there's not kind of an efficient production process, right? So that you right. get the economies of scale and actually bring down the cost of production. And what we see is that that really occurs with the internal combustion engine. And in particular, you know, obviously Henry Ford is brought up as a key example of that, but he, you know, and, and the type of production that he brings in at his factories in Detroit, which we now uh, associate and call Fordism because of him. Um, so he is able to bring in that assembly line. He is able to kind of create this model where the cost of buying an internal combustion vehicle can become much lower than an electric vehicle because it's being uh, produced in this much more efficient way. And then, of course, as we move into the 20th century and you start to have kind of the world wars and things like that where you need more vehicles and the army is buying these vehicles then there's a greater incentive then as well to um, have internal combustion vehicles because of the ease ease of just you know filling them up with um, gasoline to to pro propel them basically um, and so that is part of the moment when the internal combustion engine kind of cements its dominance um, and the electric vehicle kind of starts to fade from relevance but you still see the electric uh, you know electric vehicles i guess still being used in kind of freight and transportation uh like you know goods transportation um for decades on after that um but it's not something that's commonly used for kind of passenger or transportation after that moment the book is full of uh information on this but you you've kind of just filled that out and like one of the things that you do include in the history that you provide that was new to me um, was this idea that it was actually the shortcomings in some ways of the internal combustion engine that had the effect of making it seem like more masculine? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's a pretty fascinating history, right? Because mm -hmm. the electric vehicle runs much easier, you know, it's much cleaner. And as a result, it is kind of considered to be more feminine um, mm. because it's not kind of dirty, because you don't need to like kind of crank it to get it going, um, because it's not as loud and all this kind of stuff. And so the internal combustion vehicle, especially that early form, um, yeah, it is considered to show off because, you know, in order to get it going, you need to use a bit of kind of physical energy and stuff. And, you know, it's kind of shaky. You need to like control it. So it shows that you kind of have this this power over this machine, um, yeah. which, you know, obviously fits into kind of masculine tropes and stereotypes and stuff. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like and and so I really, you know, I kind of um, glommed onto that and, and it got me thinking about um, this new like Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> Um, okay which, i haven't seen it <laughs> okay 
So like Fast X is, of course, like, and it's been rightly attacked for being like just hyper-masculine car propaganda. That's what that whole franchise is. Of course. But it's also a movie that made $722 million uh, worldwide. And what's funny, again, to me is like, there's this dissonance in the film where like EVs, there there was this discourse around how EVs were going to make an appearance in the film. And there is like this this kind of very, very brief moment where you see the character Cypher pull up to the like hero Dom Toretto's place uh, in a DeLorean Alpha 5, which is this very sci-fi looking electric vehicle, like super luxury vehicle concept car. And it's driven, of course, by one of the few women in a male dominated franchise. And like in terms of what you were saying around shaping narratives that then become accepted as reality, I'm just wondering like... What, what do you think it would take to get Dom Toretto into an EV? Would he drive a cyber truck, an EV Hummer maybe? And do you think like the Fast and Furious films, other franchises are flirting with integrating EVs? Like I guess Netflix has signed a big deal with uh, General Motors to um, introduce more uh, EVs in its programming, right? Under the banner of creating, quote, a better, more sustainable future for our world. Um, is it still about like reinforcing the idea of driving as dominance as we integrate, you know, EVs into pop culture, or is it just about this kind of gestural politics of reflecting people's equal anxiety back to them in a way that allows them to just sort of forget about it? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating question, right? And I think one thing we need to recognize is that even with movies like Fast X or that entire franchise, but other kind of times that we see automobiles on screen, that is also kind of shaped by, as you're talking about, commercial deals, right, that are being mm-hmm. done between these various companies in order to show off particular products in movies, TV shows, advertisements, things like that, right? Um and so I think as we see more electric vehicles in these, you know, movies and and whatnot, um, uh, you know, I think it will be kind of reflecting the fact that these automakers are pushing these vehicles more and more. Um, and so obviously they need to be displayed kind of in a positive light. And, you know, this was kind of explained to me by Edward Niedermeyer, who wrote a fantastic book about the history of Tesla. And that I think is really relevant in considering this, like when we think about kind of the the form of the electric vehicle and how we think about the electric vehicle and how it fits into popular culture and stereotypes around automobiles, is that if you think about what the electric vehicle used to be kind of pre-Tesla, it was the Prius, right? It was yeah. this kind of low-powered, much more kind of simple vehicle produced by Toyota, um, you know, a kind of standard sedan. Um, The idea wasn't that it was this kind of sporty thing, but it was showing that, you know, you weren't trying to have this particular kind of um, footprint. You weren't trying to show off in this kind of way. It was scaling back. Exactly, right. It was conceived as as this kind of eco-conscious vehicle. But then, and, and, you know, that in that moment is well adopted in Silicon Valley and in the tech industry, right? A lot of people are driving Priuses to show that they have these environmental bona fides, right? Um, but then Tesla comes along and the argument or, or kind of the, the, 
notion that Elon Musk promotes is that actually electric vehicles can be cool. They can be sexy. They can be sports cars, right? So they can fit into this general idea of what a car should be and, and allow you to kind of feel like you're still, you know, empowered or whatnot because you are owning one of these vehicles. And it really changes the idea of what an electric vehicle is and what kind of market segment it fits into. And of course, you see very quickly, you know, the Valley, Silicon Valley and the wealthy people who have made money down there switching from the Prius to the Tesla Roadster and, you know, the the later models that come along after that. Um, and it really changes, I think, a bit of like a self-perception of what it means to be an electric car driver, right? You don't need to, um, you know... You don't need to sacrifice in the way that you did with the Prius in the past. You can still have this really sporty vehicle while, you know, kind of not having the environmental footprint or saving the world or, or whatever. And that just continues to be kind of replicated um, over time where, you know, think about Joe Biden when he was pushing the electric vehicle early on in his presidency. He went to the General Motors facility and was driving around an electric Hummer. Right. It had to be um, the Hummer. Yeah, exactly. Right. It had to be a militaristic looking thing. Yeah, Totally. And it's not at all like, um, you know, it's not some, some kind of vehicle that we would consider sustainable or green in any kind of way. It weighs four tons. Totally. Because of all the minerals that are required to create the yeah. batteries, you know, because of all the energy that will be required to power it. You know, this is not what a kind of sustainable form of transportation looks like. And now we see that the auto industry, as it makes this transition over to electric vehicles, it's not, you know, producing the form factors that are like the Priuses or, you know, Chevrolet had the, the Bolt, I believe it was called, which was a smaller vehicle. And they're now phasing that out. But all of these automakers are going for, you know, the big Ford 150 lightnings and the big uh, electric SUVs and all this kind of stuff is mm -hmm. the way that they are promoting what this electric future is going to be. Um, and it's very clearly not one that requires kind of less energy or less resources or whatnot in order to uh, move us around, but it's still really large vehicles that are going to cost a lot of money. Um, but now we can kind of greenwash them and frame them in this way where they look like they're environmentally friendly because of the narrative that we've had for the past decade or so. And Elon Musk and the tech industry were very key in helping the the, the larger automotive industry to kind of create that, I would say. Yeah, if it really does feel like a particularly insidious form of corporate kind of enclosure. Um, and I appreciate the kind of reminder about the Prius and how, in many ways, it was sort of the the brunt of the joke, you know. Um, yeah. You know, it's like the car that Andy on the office drove and, and exactly. was endlessly made fun of for. And would like Jim Carrey have said, I love my Prius? He would have been like laughed at. It would have been yeah. <laughs> too much. Um, and yet, yeah, as you say, I mean, like, we're now at a point where there's this like unbelievable acceleration of the EV market. Right. Because of measures in Canada's a healthy environment and a healthy economy plan, jobs in the EV industry are expected to increase 26 fold by 2030. That's pretty insane. And now apparently close to 70 percent of Canadians polled by Abacus data see major investments in EV battery manufacturing as evidence of a clean energy transition that will benefit Canada's economy. So like right now, there are nearly one and a half billion cars on Earth. In Road to Nowhere, 
you, you say, quote, all those vehicles, the inefficient nature of suburban living and the mass consumption of goods have significantly contributed to the greenhouse gas emissions that threaten the future of every being on the planet. And that is not an exaggeration, right? But it's also true that we need to, quote, avoid making the mistake of ignoring the global environmental footprint of building more than a billion electric vehicles to replace all the personal vehicles on the world's roads. You know, I I want to, you know, talk about this sort of um, thing that I think people are increasingly aware of, uh, which is like the problems around mining, especially in relation to lithium and cobalt, uh, because, you know, it's, it's not going to be mentioned in the kinds of documentaries that you deconstruct in the book. It's not mentioned in this recent um, Nova documentary, for example, that does feature the electric F-150. Uh, I think it's called Chasing Net Zero. Um, but as I say, like people are reading the articles, I think. you know, People are concerned about what's fueling this transition. And you talk about it quite a bit in the book and, and from this place of radical concern. You know, the question basically is like, in what ways um, is this kind of massive expansion of the mining industry going to create, as you say, mass suffering and environmental damage? Where is it happening now and, and where could we see it happening in the future? And, you know, because it's not just about awareness, what can be done to fight those effects? I think I would start by saying that, you know, when I criticize electric vehicles, some people who are like, you know, supporters of Tesla and of the larger EV industry would say, why are you criticizing EVs? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, fossil fuel cars are, are worse. And I would say, yeah, fossil fuel cars are worse, but that doesn't mean that electric vehicles are the solution to the problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would say that automobility as a whole is the problem, not just, you know, because we currently power our cars with fossil fuels instead of batteries. Um, and so I think that when you look at the EV industry, and I'll touch on Canada specifically, but you know, basically what you require in order to build these electric vehicles is a lot of minerals to be mined to go into the batteries that are necessary to you know, kind of power the cars and the trucks and the SUVs, right? Um, and because we have made this choice in North America in particular, that our EV industry is going to continue the trends that we've already had over the past couple of decades where vehicles are going to get bigger and heavier and all this kind of stuff. Um, and they also need to have really long ranges so that we're not worried about range anxiety and things like that. The batteries that are required to move those kinds of vehicles are incredibly large and of course as a result very resource intensive and so that means that there's a lot of mining that is required in order to create those batteries and so right now what we see is that a lot of lithium comes from australia um, but a growing amount of the lithium that goes into electric vehicle batteries is coming from south america where that lithium is extracted from the salt flats which is a very dry um, area. Um, and what happens is it requires a lot of water in order to extract. So the water table drops and the nearby communities lose access to fresh water. Um, and they often don't receive kind of the benefits of the extraction that is happening around their communities. But on top of that, you know, cobalt is also very important to batteries and a lot of kind of the electronics that we use. A lot of that cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo um, over in Africa. And we know that, you know, there's child labor that's involved with the extraction of those minerals, that there are a lot of uh, incredibly negative effects on the workers and the communities, the health of the people who are um, in those areas where that extraction is taking place. And they, of course, often don't get kind of the material benefits of all that extraction. Um, they still live in a lot of poverty. 
Um, and so there's a lot of kind of environmental and human harm that comes of that extraction. Um, one of the major places where we're seeing for a lot of nickel extraction that also goes into these batteries um, is in Indonesia, where um, you know you can see that the seas around where this happened kind of turn a kind of a rusty orangey color um, mm. because of all of the pollution uh, from that mining that goes into the seas. And of course, again, there's the environmental harm and the human harm that comes of this as well. Um, and so all of that is happening and a lot of the mining that is going to be required for these batteries is going to continue to happen in the global south right in countries that are kind of um, out of sight out of mind for a lot of us but uh, is very central to canadian mining companies and of course it's something like 70 or 75 percent of global mining companies are headquartered in canada so this is very relevant for us as a country as we think about what is going to happen here and potentially why our government is so intent on having this be the path forward because it's going to require a lot more mining in order to create these things. Um, but then also when we look domestically, we see that the government is pushing a massive expansion of mining within Canada as well in order to extract uh, the critical minerals that are needed for battery production, not just within Canada, but through North America and around the world as well. We're kind of positioning self our, ourselves as a key hub for that. Um, and so you know, there's already been reporting in the Walrus, for example, on lithium mining in uh, Quebec and the problems that have been caused by that and how local communities have been opposing it. Of course, we also see stories very frequently um, about, say, the Ring of Fire in Ontario, where uh, they want to do a lot of mining for a lot of these minerals and indigenous communities are pushing back against that because it's not clear how they would benefit from it um, and it would cause a lot of environmental damage. We see protests in British Columbia around mining. Um, there's talk of some mining that already occurs in Labrador um, and could expand in order to uh, supply some of these electric vehicle battery plants and whatnot. Um, you know, up north as well, of course. Uh, you know, so all around the country, there are sites that could be mined and basically every province and territory is looking at um, their supplies of minerals and where mining might be able to be expanded in order to supply these things. And I know this is answer is quite long, so I would just finish off by saying that I think one of my biggest concerns is that we see the government of Canada moving forward um, very kind of with a lot of energy into positioning electric vehicles as kind of the way that we are going to address um the contribution of climate change made by transportation and transportation is the mm -hmm. second largest source of emissions in Canada um, after the fossil fuel industry because of the extraction that happens in Alberta for the most part. Um, but I think that the reason they do that is because one, they see the opportunity for automotive jobs in Southern Ontario um, and battery production jobs through Ontario and Quebec. And so they want to encourage that because there's already a pre-existing automotive industry there, even though we're seeing that in a lot of these plants, it looks like wages are going to be lower and there's going to be fewer workers that would be needed compared to right. what is needed to produce current vehicles. Um, and there's also the big push to do this because it will require a lot more mining. That will mean a lot more resource extraction and jobs in resource extraction um, that will kind of, you know, look good on the GDP figures that will allow them to say they're creating jobs and all this kind of stuff. But I think that if they were really serious about reducing emissions and taking on this problem, they would be making massive investments in public transportation in cities and communities around the country. They would be building high-speed rail, uh, you know, from Southern Ontario through to Quebec, maybe through the Atlantic provinces as well. Um, you know, certainly between Calgary and Edmonton, 
certainly, you know, from Vancouver down, uh, you know, in collaboration with the US down kind of the, the Pacific coast. Um, but we see very little of that action or that desire by the government, which shows that I think it shows that they're not really interested in doing what is most sustainable, what is best for emissions, what is best for having a resilient public transportation system for the future, but are more concerned about what is the type of transportation and type of way of looking like addressing this problem that still creates a lot of profit, um, that is still kind of aligning with the type of economy that we have right now. Even the kind of terms we use, um, ring of fire, the area that you're describing where lithium will increasingly be distracted is sometimes called the lithium triangle. And I think like these terms actually become a way that spaces of, of increasing eco economic and ecological instability get on people's radar, right? When they would otherwise be out of sight and out of mind. Um, but the thing, you know, because uh, you kind of ended on this point that I'd like to kind of mostly uh, hear you build on is just this idea of trying to de-emphasize economic growth as it's currently understood. Like to me, it, it really matters that you're arguing for that de-emphasizing of uh, GDP economic growth as somehow markers of a, of a healthy society. I mean, at one point you say uh, addressing the inequities and harms of our world doesn't require the invention of new technologies it requires a new politics that recognizes economic growth and technological innovation do not guarantee social progress. Um, you know, some of the reporting on the catastrophic wildfires that we're seeing across Canada, which will likely be the source of the greatest amount of greenhouse gas emissions this year, um, have noted that while the fires are costly and insurance companies are having difficulty getting like reinsurance funds, in some ways it's going to potentially be good for economic growth because of this idea of like the broken window fallacy, this phenomenon in economics where breaking the windows in your house adds to economic growth, according to GDP, because the demand for windows rises. You know, the authors of The, the Future is Degrowth make a similar kind of argument in terms of car crashes, that a car crash in some ways is actually good for GDP. Um, and like, you know, it it's probably relevant here that Tesla's vehicles aren't built to last also, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Why do you think it's important to just like keep in mind that it's it's really market logic that leads us down the road to nowhere? Yeah, it, it's so perverse, right? When you actually think about the implications of all of this. And like, as I argue in the book, part of the reason that we have the transportation system we do that is so dependent on automobiles is not because it was the most kind of efficient or the best way to plan transportation, but because it was the most profitable, right? And because ultimately there were a lot of commercial interests that saw how they were going to benefit from having us all reliant on cars, right? You'd have to buy the car from the automaker. You need to pay for your gas. You need to get your insurance from the insurance company you need to get your regular maintenance but owning a car also requires you to have more spread out communities and that would mean that construction companies would be building the roads and the suburbs uh, to create all of that you know and on and on right there were a lot of interests that saw how they were going to benefit from such a transportation system um, and it would obviously contribute to kind of economic activity which goes into gdp figures which is what we're all trying to strive toward right but i think ultimately what i would say is that if we look at the past several decades, right? Would people actually say that all of that economic growth that happened was, uh, you know, kind of broadly shared and broadly beneficial to the wider population? Um, 
obviously there have been some benefits there, but what we see is that inequality has increased massively, right? And that the people at the top have grabbed most of the benefits of that. And it doesn't look like that is going to change at any time in the future. And I think if we also look at the types of communities we live in, if we look at the way that we live in general, you know, we're all still kind of expected to go work our 40 hours a week, if not more at you know, the jobs that we work at, um, you know, meanwhile, kind of just paying for, a, you know, the necessities of life for housing, for food and all this kind of stuff has gotten more expensive. It's become harder to do that. You know, everyone's budgets kind of feel more stretched. So is economic growth really generally working for everybody? Or are we just kind of on this like hamster wheel where we need to keep running and keep running and kind of keep earning and buying and all this kind of stuff? Or could we think about how we set up our society and our communities and and just our economic model in a different way so that, you know, it works better for us and the things that we actually value in our lives. And I think I would, you know, relate this back to what we're doing now with transportation and the way that we're going to address the climate crisis, right? Mm -hmm. The idea is that everything should stay the same. We should keep on this path, but all we need to do is just electrify things in society and that will address the problem. And, you know, the most obvious example is transportation. And so instead of investing in public transportation, instead of investing in uh, cycling infrastructure, instead of rethinking how we build our communities so that we build denser communities where people are closer together where it's easier to access you know uh, job opportunities and the services you need and you know healthcare and all this kind of stuff without needing to drive um instead the focus is let's keep all that the same let's keep everyone in the suburban home let's have house prices keep going through the roof because that's what works for investors in the banks and stuff like that um but meanwhile let's just ensure that we uh electrify the cars so that you know, we don't affect the jobs that go into manufacturing those cars. So we create more jobs in resource extraction um, so that people still have to pay for a car and pay for all the other kind of uh, costs that go along with it. Uh, because if that didn't happen and if we had a lot more people who weren't driving a car and just, you know, paid their public transit fare every week or month or whatever um, and used the bus or bought a bike you know, one year and maybe got it fixed the next year, but didn't have to buy another bike for five or 10 years because, you know, the bike will last you. That's not contributing the same way to economic growth, to GDP, to, you know, you're not having the same kind of turnover and, and the, the need to keep buying things um, that exists in the current society and the way that things work. And so that's why that, you know, f type of development is discouraged ultimately. And so, you know, your writing is, is in some ways straddling the line between admitting that, yes, electric vehicles tend to produce fewer admission, emissions over their life cycle uh, and saying that the deeper problem, as you, as you write, is how dependent we have, we have to be on our cars uh, and the lack of re reliable alternatives. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's super difficult, I think, in terms of communication to decide whether it's more effective to advocate for changing very little and like making that change easy or like leveraging a desire for disruptive change um you know telling history otherwise like the thing that i value about your approach as i say is like so much of your argument is about kind of reclaiming self-determination you know i like this line where you say uh, residents must be part of the process to ensure changes address their needs. It will require more frequent services, 
that are extended to underserved uh, neighborhoods so that transit's reliable and people won't get stuck. Um, I think talking about mobility as a right rather than a commodity uh, means that you can kind of frame the struggle uh, as one that puts displaced, poor, and often black communities at the center um, while saying that we all need to obviously jointly push in a different direction and right now. I guess the thing is, it's like, it's really hard to figure out how to get there. So really, I'm, you know, what I'm wondering is whether you could give a, a bit more clarity on this idea that, as you say, in the face of the climate crisis, we should really be thinking about many seemingly separate struggles, you know, over mobility, housing, health, community, and many others as interconnected. Like, what does that approach offer that, you know, fighting just one of these issues doesn't? And is it something that the climate movement seems to miss from your perspective? Absolutely. It's a, it's a good question. And, um, you know, I, I certainly won't have all the answers on this, sure. but, I, you know, I can certainly yeah. give it my best, right? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think one thing that really stands out to me is I think that people are much more open to change than we give them credit for. Um, right. But I think that part of the, the reason that it can seem so resistive uh, that that society can seem so resistant to change is that um we have set it up in such a way where people are incentivized to you know just want key just want things to kind of continue as they are because if not it could be a threat to their well-being and their ability to provide for their families and all this kind of stuff right you know we've set up a society in such a way where in order to have a roof over your head often you need to you know, take this big mortgage that, um, you know, you need to pay for 20, 25 years, um, you know, in some jurisdictions that's even be extended, being extended even longer now. Um, and on top of that, in order to get around, you need to get a car and your car payment is probably going to go on for now, what, six or seven years is the the newer kind of terms on vehicles. And those are huge costs to people. So then you need to keep working a job and you need to make, make sure that you keep holding down your job um, so that you can make your payments on your home and your car. And, you know, there's there's just this kind of cycle, right? So you can understand why people are a bit hesitant and, and are sometimes a bit worried about bigger changes and what they might mean for them. But I think that if you explain it properly and you outline it, then I think that people become much more open to it. And, you know, you can certainly say that maybe I'm being a bit too hopeful there. But I think I would say that the key to making those changes, to getting people on side, um, to getting governments to kind of follow through on it, is ultimately to have the power to be able to demand that, right? Part of the reason that our society is sh so shaped by the desires of corporations and the need to turn a profit is because that is where power resides in our society right now. And the only way that we're going to get governments to do something else is if there is that collective organizing in order to show that there is enough power to demand them to do something else. So that is organizing around climate action. That is worker organizing, right, to ensure that people are in unions and actually have the ability to push back on their bosses, but also through their unions to kind of collectively organize for workers' rights and other types of things in society. But also people who organize around housing and around transportation and all this kind of stuff. And the more power that those types of movements have and the more that they work together to help one another with their collective issues, um, then I think that it ensures that there's more power to be able to push back and actually to demand that change on a political level. Because ultimately, the way I see it, you know, the way I feel it works is that, you know, 
the state and the government is ultimately responding to the various forces that exist in society. And, and right now the power resides with, you know, kind of corporate Canada, basically, right? Um, they're the people who, who have the most wealth and the most power to, to kind of push around to ensure that the government serves their interests. And so if we're ever going to get something else that, that looks quite different from that, um, ultimately people need to organize to achieve it. And, you know, I'm not trying to suggest that that's easy. Like it, it is difficult. Um, but, you know, that's how change happens. I really like this point that, um, you know, from your perspective, people are more open to change than we give them credit for because it just, yeah, it echoes something that um, a local activist was saying um, recently that it's it's really privileged people that don't like change. Um, it's It's wrong to assume that people in general do not want change as a whole. Totally. And people who have more privilege, more wealth, more comfort also have a greater ability to to participate in the political process as it is set up right now, right? So if we're also thinking not just about how, um, you know, how we make society better, but also how we make society more democratic, that means also thinking about the structures that we have set up that enabled people to participate in the system and in the process. Um, and right now it's set up in such a way that there are kind of structural barriers to participation. And there are a lot of people who I think rightfully feel that the system doesn't respond to their needs. And so they're kind of apathetic and unengaged with it. Um, and I think that in order to get that engagement back and in order to ensure that the, the system actually better serves, you know, the people who it should be serving, um, then that requires more than just, you know, ensuring that more people are voting or whatever, but it also requires some more structural changes to the way that we have our democratic system set up right now to ensure it's more accessible for people uh, to, to do that, basically. Yeah. And I mean, like, at this moment, I'm thinking about the fact that after this summer, uh, or I should say this fire season, because, you know, our best estimates have this out, these out of control wildfires across Canada burning until maybe October. I think this country will exist in a less innocent kind of place. Um, and it's already happening. I mean, I just read that a large majority, something like 70% of Canadians believe the wildfires are definitely or most likely the result of climate change. Um, and that's from a new survey uh, from Clean Energy Canada. You know, We've seen an astonishing like 9.5 million hectares of of the country burn um, and really, you know, untold uh, indigenous communities, especially displaced. Um, and you have to think that the climate catastrophe won't stay abstract in the aftermath of this event. Um, but I think the issue is still one of politics and communication, like the relationship between those things and sort of the radical imagination. So like if folks on the left, let's call them eco-socialists or progressive liberals, try to push for significant policy action and you know funding of climate initiatives, uh, the reorganization of transit, for example, they're still, I think, likely to be labeled sort of political operatives that are trying to exploit the crisis and like advocate for what is still seen as seemingly impossible. It's just like something that really... <laughs> Uh, I get hung up on. And you wrote in a, a CBC article last year that, quote, the, the climate crisis does offer an unprecedented opportunity to reimagine how we build our communities. Uh, but things like the push for electric vehicles are it's really about making the smallest possible change. 
So um, you kind of gestured this, but I'm just, you know, again, looking for all the answers. As a communicator, how do you think about the way that crisis factors in the kind of question of opportunity? Uh, Or how do you think uh, a vision based on crisis can become a strategy and, and a policy and so on? Yeah, like I, I think crisis is always devastating, right? And it's always terrible to see these yeah. natural disasters happening across Canada. But I also think that, you know, there are moments when people are most engaged with these issues and they need to be taken of taken advantage of in order to push the messages, right? In order to really concretely say that this is happening because of climate change. Our governments are not taking the right policies. You know, um, what was it last year? Uh, and, and of course, you'll have experienced this as well when I believe it was Hurricane Fiona um, came through and had a really damaging impact, not just on the maritime provinces, but also the west coast of Newfoundland. You know, it was also really a moment to say, hey, and the Newfoundland government is pushing for continued expansion of oil and gas extraction, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a, a deep sea oil project uh, on top of that, right? Um, And that is not in line with what we need to be doing if we're trying to address the climate crisis. Um, And so I think that, you know, you talk about how about 70% of people recognize that these wildfires are, you know, caused by climate change or climate change is contributing to them or whatnot, right? And I think Mm -hmm. that Again, like I think that we underestimate the degree to which Canadians um, recognize that climate change is real and want action on climate change and that our government is not taking the action that many people would want to see or would be open to to having them take. Right. Um, And I think part of that is because they pursue it in the wrong way, because they're far too focused on market mechanisms and making sure that this is palatable to kind of Bay Street um, and the major kind of executives at fossil fuel companies and, and, you know, various other um, corporate executives across the country. And so they don't take the radical action that um, I think would be much more you know, that people would potentially be much more open to like proper investments in public infrastructure, rather than Mm -hmm. just how do we uh, create incentives and tax breaks that are going to push people and companies to act in different ways, like carbon taxes and and things like that, right? Right. Um, And obviously, we've seen a lot of pushback to uh, carbon taxes and the clean fuel standard uh, in by Atlantic premiers uh, quite recently, because, you know, they're they're starting to apply here. When we think about the impact of climate change in Canada, I think one thing we talk about how, you know, the the temperature globally is about 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial levels. But we also know that Canada is warming faster than other nations because we are more northern, right? Um, Mm. The effects of climate change are more visible here than potentially in other parts of the world, though that's not to say other parts of the world are not seeing it because they very much are when we see heat waves in various parts of the world and and increased natural disasters and all those things. Mm -hmm. But I think if you if you go from coast to coast to coast and like you cross the country and you ask people what they have noticed with weather weather patterns and the climate in their area of the country, everyone will be able to tell you how it's changed in the past few decades, right? Um, I think people just generally recognize that this is something that's happening and that action needs to be taken. Um, and and 
I think that many people recognize that our governments are not taking the action that needs to be taken. And again, part of that is because the power that resource companies and fossil fuel companies have in Canada, not just in provinces where extraction happens like Newfoundland and Labrador, Alberta and Saskatchewan, um, but also uh, it, within the federal government as well. And we saw reporting, I believe it was last year from the breach um, about how the natural resources department was very closely aligned with um, the fossil fuel industry uh, and was kind of pushing their views and their their policy ideas and trying to push back on the uh, Department of Environment and Climate Change and the types of things that they were trying to do. So we can see how that has influence within the halls of power. Um, and yeah, so it's it's tough to see to say you know what exactly we do to push back on that. Sure. But ultimately, I would I would you know fall back on. I think organizing is a very important part of it. But then, of course, communication and not just, you know, kind of having people recognize that climate change is happening and that climate change, climate change is contributing to these um, natural disasters, but also like what does a better world look like where we address the climate crisis and build a more sustainable society? And I think that one of the problems that the Trudeau liberals face and the NDP for that matter as well is that they can't really outline what that world is going to look like and how it's going to be better for you. And I think that when most people think about addressing the climate crisis, they just think of things getting more expensive because of the carbon tax and things getting sure. more inconvenient. Um, and so I think that because the government is so reliant on ensuring that these things happen in the private sector and that the private sector is leading action on climate change, that they lose their ability to really kind of lay out what a better, more sustainable future could look like and take the actions to realize that. And I would say it's also because, you know, the liberals are quite market oriented, you know, are quite close to to capital in the country. And that's why they are termed the natural governing party, because, uh, you know, they've been they've been good enough for capital to keep them in there that long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. And like, it's staggering because uh, all you're hearing is, is it's like fear and fees and inconvenience. It's like there isn't enough material uh, uh, articulation of that alternative to feel like mobilized, right? Like we're talking here about like the politics of mobility, but we're also thinking through like the politics of mobilization um, you know, fear, fees, and inconvenience, like it's going to mostly mobilize people to try somehow to preserve business as usual, even though you know that the world is on fire and you can't deny it. Exactly. You know, it really feels to me like your book is ultimately like an attempt to kind of reinvigorate the imagination and give people a sense that, yes, a different sort of infrastructure is possible. I mean, one of the ways that you argue that is by showing that there have been moments where massive amounts of public money was spent to expand highways to alleviate congestion, only to see more congestion um, as a result of what's called induced demand. Um, and I, you know that concept was new to me, and it was like it's it's really useful. But it's also a concept that privileged people like Elon Musk just reject as nonsense because it doesn't <laughs> fit their particular worldview. It, it, it's all it's all fairly overwhelming, but when you kind of try to zoom in on what's locally possible, um, you know there is a moment of potential. You know we could get theoretical and say resubjectivation, where some new kind of sub political subjectivity actually becomes like imaginable. Um, and so you know I, I I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about induced demand. That it, it's maybe a little too technical, but more importantly, I guess like if you want to expand on 
some of the movements against the sort of just banality of violence that is, you know, pedestrian deaths. As you say, uh, the early 20th century saw reactions to pedestrian deaths that were extreme, like there was mass grieving and outrage. And you say that this might seem unimaginable today, but that's because the mass death that was caused by automobiles had not yet been normalized. So I just, I think that's an important point that I kind of wanted to give you an opportunity to expand on as this sort of, you know, not to put words in your mouth, but kind of like model of what's possible locally when there is the, when there are sort of the conditions for, as it were, like shared outrage, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would just say, if you're thinking about normalization of death, you know, we're kind of in the process of that right now, right? Um, sure. Like, if you think about what happened with automobiles, how they kind of arrive, and because they don't fit within the transportation system that existed before, you know, walking, bicycles, streetcars, horse-drawn carriages, they move faster, um, they're more kind of mobile and agile, um, so they start killing people, particularly children and young women, and people become very outraged about that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, and that creates a lot of movements against automobiles that are very kind of active and very forceful, that have very strong propaganda, that, uh, you know, they call the car the modern Moloch because it requires uh, sacrifice. Um, you know, they have parades uh, when people die um, to draw attention to the fact that this is happening, you know, funeral parades. Um, they ring the bells in churches and fire halls and places like that when, when people are killed by automobiles. Like there's a real strong anger about the fact that this is happening. And of course, in that moment, um, you know, the car is something that is owned by wealthier people. It's not kind of a mass object that many people are driving. And so in particular, it's people who are more wealthy who are killing people who are poorer, living in cities in particular, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a real kind of backlash to that. But if we think about what we've just been through with the COVID pandemic, like we can see how this normalization of death works, right? We're, what, three years into it now, a bit over that. Um, and we can see that we've reached this point where, you know, we know that people are still dying, that the virus is still going around. It's just to, to a certain degree less than how many had died before, though we know that the people who the number of people who died last year was more than the number who died in 2021. Um, but, you know, we've kind of accepted that we're moving on with it, like generally within society. We're not talking about it as much. The media doesn't report on it as much. So you can see how this kind of process of normalization works. Right. And so I just think it's a good example to, to give to people. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that when we look at the history of the automobile and obviously in the book, I talk a lot about the United States um, because, you know, that is kind of the big place where the car is dominant, but also where the tech industry is located. And I'm looking at both aspects of that. Um, but you can see that there are movements over time in many different countries around the world to push back against automobiles, to push for different forms of transportation. So obviously I was talking about the early 1900s and, and people who are angry in that moment around road deaths and things like that. You see in the 70s as well, um, the 60s and 70s, you see opposition to highway construction, not just in the United States, but in Canada as well, because in that moment, you're, they're building out the interstate highway system down in the US, but we're also building out the Trans-Canada highway system. Um, in Canada, and there's opposition to highway construction in places like Toronto and Vancouver, and I'm sure more places around the country. I'm just not as familiar with that history. Um, mm -hmm. And in some cases, they stop highways from being built through cities um, and, and things like that, right? Because they 
the plan basically is to, you know, tear down a bunch of the inner city and replace them with highways for people who are driving, who are going in and out from the suburbs. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But in Europe as well, we see in the post-war period, because obviously there was a lot less transformation for cars before the Second World War, though in some countries it was already happening. Um, but the real push to kind of transform Europe for the car is made after the Second World War, um, you know, as part of the Marshall Plan and as part of just the general kind of reinvestments in kind of building these communities and, and what they're going to look like for the future. And what we see is that there's opposition in many different countries to this, um, but some of the most notable is in places like the Netherlands and um, Denmark, where there are people who organize and they see that their public areas are being torn up and replaced with parking lots. Um, and you know they see that the number of people who die on the roads is increasing, and children in particular, and so they protest against it. And one of the things that was helpful for them is that the 1970s is also a period of oil crises, right? Uh, in sure. the early and the mid 1970s. And so there's a big increase in oil prices. And so that aids them in pushing back against this transformation, um, you know, to, to fit the car um, because it's, you know, clearly not working through that decade. And that is part of the reason why when you look at countries like uh, the Netherlands and Denmark today, there's a lot more bicycling because, um, you know, they push back against the car, but they also had, you know, the, the help of kind of the geopolitics of the moment um, to make the, the uh, fight against that. Um, but even in North America, we see during that moment um, in the 70s, um, you know, housing sizes in the United States decrease. We see people driving or driving less and walking more and taking bicycles more to reduce their energy use and the, the energy demand because, again, of, of, because of the oil shocks. Um, but that is not really kind of used as a larger model of transformation through the 80s and 90s. There's a massive expansion of suburban building that continues to happen. Um, mm. So, you know, it, do it doesn't really take hold. But I think I would say just to kind of, you know, make a final point on this. Um, in the book, I talk a lot about the opportunities that have been had in the United States to kind of make these large public investments, right? Um, and how we shouldn't forget those things. I, and I don't really address Canada because the book is mainly focused on the U.S. market because, you know, it's a bigger market for selling books. Um, <laughs> that's just the reality of things. But I think if you look at books like uh, Linda McQuaig's The Sport and Prey of Capital, she really um, digs into the role that the public sector has played in Canada, you know, since, you know, it's, it's kind of founding as a colonial state. Um, in order to kind of build out public infrastructure and and you know to kind of create the foundations of the country that we now recognize as Canada through you know cre creating public institutions through the Second World War, for example, to build you know uh, ammunitions and planes and all that kind of stuff that we needed. Um, you know, public housing, of course, was huge to build the public broadcaster, the railways. Um, you know, uh, radio networks that kind of cross the country. Um, we used to have a public pharmaceutical company. Um, you know, you'd think that probably would have been relevant in the moment of a global pandemic, but of course we had sold it off. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there are many ways that the public sector has been very beneficial to Canadians. And we often, I think, forget that because that's not the history that we're told any longer. And so, you know, you were talking about how when we think about 
climate change or when many people think about climate action, it's uh, things getting more expensive, more taxes, there's more fear and all that kind of stuff. But the government could have a huge opportunity to step in and say, okay, we're making massive investments in public transportation systems around the country. So it's going to be easier for you to get around your cities and your communities, right? We're making huge investments in intercity transportation. So, you know, high speed trains, better train network, intercity bus systems for the places where that makes more sense. You know, in the past few years, we've seen Greyhound pull out of Canada, and that has left a lot of communities without those types of bus services that they rely on. They could step in and say, uh, you know, housing is incredibly expensive in cities around the country. We are going to build um, very sustainable kind of, uh, you know, zero emissions um, public housing that will be very affordable for people um, that will kind of fill the gap because the federal government used to invest a lot of money in public housing before Brian Mulroney and Jean Chrétien cut it all, right? Um, yeah. And there's so many other ways that they could step in and, you know, be building a transmission infrastructure like the Atlantic Loop to uh, encourage you know, uh, renewable energy production and and things like that. Um, like there's so many different ways that they could use the public purse and the public dollar and the unique spending ability of the federal government to make these massive, um, you know, public investments that would really change the country and improve people's lives. But because they're so captured by um, Bay Street, by kind of corporate Canada, um, they're really unwilling to do that. Yeah, it speaks to, I mean, like, I'm immediately reminded of this, um, this uh, phrase that Jennifer Wenzel used in a, a podcast I helped produce called Volatile Trajectories. She just says it really succinctly, we have the ideas that we need, we have the technologies that we need, what we lack is the politics, we do not have the politics that we need. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, I think, that politics looks like sort of putting aside the business case and de-emphasizing growth um, and re-emphasizing something like maybe not branded as sustainability because that has been, I think, evacuated in some ways of meaning. Um, but just, you know, uh, opposing this race to the bottom, you know, neoliberal death sentence, basically, <laughs> Um not not totally. perfect not a perfectly branded uh, politics but it's still i mean i think it's apt nonetheless you know yeah but i i think it's about recognizing that like you know growth and, and interest in gdp and and gdp growth is basically a post-world war ii thing right this was yeah, kind yeah. of the metric that we adopted it was recognized that this was an imperfect metric was not measuring all the things that were actually important but it has still kind of um, become what we focus on, what we measure our economies and our society on, regardless of whether, you know, the distribution of that GDP and that prosperity is actually making any sense and is actually broadly working for people. And I think that we should be much more focused, um, not so much on economic growth and GDP growth and whatnot, but like quality of life. Like, are we actually making it easier right. for people to live a better life? Um, you know, are we making housing more affordable? Are we making it easier for people to get around? Are we making it so people have more leisure time so they can spend more time with the people that they care about and doing the things that they enjoy rather than just having to work their jobs? Like there's so many ways that we could look at improving our society, but because we're so focused on growth and on GDP, you know, those things are often in conflict with um, 
you know, those particular metrics that we judge our society on right now. And until we start to de-emphasize those things um, and not put them as kind of like the gold star and, and the guiding light for everything that we're doing, um, then we're going to continue down these paths where we just kind of make decisions that work for capital and for, for large companies, um, but don't often work for the public and make people's lives better and easier. Um, and I think that when we do that, certainly, you know, there are ways that we can do that that wouldn't be sustainable, that would have a negative environmental impact. But I think actually, if we're thinking about the things that actually make people's lives better, you know, giving them better housing that is more insulated, that is more energy efficient, that is more affordable, you know, giving people transportation options where they don't have to drive all the time, thinking about what a different kind of living in our society works like where where maybe you don't need to work as much, but you also don't need to buy as many things and you can spend more time doing things that you enjoy. Like I think that these are inherently kind of less carbon intensive and, and more sustainable anyway. Um, but again, you know, we're discouraged from doing that because it doesn't work for the bigger model that we're kind of chasing. Yeah, it's for sure. And I think like, um, you know, uh, the thing, the reason I keep recommending your book to people is that, um, it's, it's not just a, a book about like modal shift as it's sometimes called. Uh, it's not just a book about big tech. It's, it's about sort of like, um, sort of ideologies of progress. And yeah, this idea that, you know, there are many things that we take for granted, um, that are barriers to basically liberation, like barriers to equity. Um, like it's just, it's, it's such a, an opening, right? It says like to oppose big tech is not to oppose progress, but to oppose basically like dispossession, um, and, and the specific way that we've organized our society to this point. And it's, it's basically the thing, like it is conceivable to imagine like ways for the situation to change. Um, so thank you for writing the book. Thanks for, uh, talking to me about it. It's been a pleasure. No, of course. And I appreciate you saying that because the book originated as uh, my master's thesis. So obviously it was very, uh, you know, the way it was originally written was not very accessible to a lot of people. Um, and when I when I kind of rewrote it for more of a general audience, it was trying to make it accessible, but also looking at it and saying like, you know, I can I can just look at the tech industry and how the tech industry has got things wrong. Or I can look much more deeply and go into that history and go into like the ideologies that exist around it. And I think that that was much more fruitful for having a better understanding of how the system is today. So it's great to hear that, you know, you have taken a lot from it and that you found it, you know, an accessible read. Um, and obviously, I very much appreciate being able to come on and talk to you about it. And, you know, I really enjoyed your question. So thanks so much. Of course. And um, I'll say too, like, just as a, a plug, your long running podcast, uh, Tech Won't Save Us is, um, a, you know, it's wonderful. People should absolutely listen to that. And it is also, it sounds like, you know, motivated by this idea of trying to open up a conversation. Um, so did you want to say anything about the podcast or, or give people a heads up on what they can expect coming up like this this season i don't know if you frame it in terms of seasons or or yeah just what they can expect coming up yeah of course um you know i obviously appreciate that the show uh, just turned three years old a few months ago so it was a product of the pandemic um yeah. and basically the goal Mine of the too. show yeah of course yeah, yeah i'm sure so many podcasts right sure. yeah <laughs> um but, you know, the goal of the show is really to say, look, like we all hear about the tech industry and technology all the time, but a lot of the reporting on it is very uncritical and even boosterish. 
And so the goal of the show is just to give people a different perspective on the industry. And every single week I talk to a different expert about a different aspect of the industry or a different company or a different personality. Um, and we kind of critically examine those things so that listeners have a better understanding of you know the industry itself and this industry that really has a lot of um, impact on our lives and our economies and all this kind of stuff right um, mm -hmm. like you can't escape these tech products uh, and so yeah we've been doing a lot of work uh, the past year kind of exploring AI because there's been this big AI boom um, and so there's another episode coming on that soon to kind of add an, a yet another perspective on it um, a more of an indigenous perspective um, we have an episode coming up on um, the Israeli weapons industry, um, which I think is very relevant with what just happened in the Janine refugee camp where uh, the Israeli military um, attacked it in the occupied Palestinian territories. We, you know, obviously we have a bunch of episodes coming up looking at different uh, aspects of the tech industry as always, but we also have a, a, a kind of an inter interesting one coming a bit of a different one for us looking at UFOs um, mm. because there's been like a lot of renewed interest in that in the United States in particular. There has, yeah. I'm sure if people are interested in the tech industry at all, they can probably find an episode that they might want to check out. I'll definitely be listening. And uh, thanks again for doing this. Absolutely. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you.